As a kid, I grew up with kind of a skewed understanding of marriage and what it meant. And I think it was because I was conditioned by the culture who always talks about finding the one, you know, to think of my future spouse as that one with whom I'd feel some kind of cosmic connection or that one whom I'd feel was my soulmate, the one my very soul had longed to find or that one whom I'd feel completed me in some mystical way. And as a high schooler in English class, I read the greatest love story of the modern age, Romeo and Juliet, which is a story about two rival families in Verona, Italy, the Montagues and the Capulets. And at the beginning of the story, they get into a fight. And uh, after the fight's broken up, the Montague family's wondering where their son Romeo is. And we discover that Romeo has been off on his own, moping around, lovesick over a girl who doesn't love him back named Rosaline. And later, Romeo sneaks into a party that he knows Rosaline will be at. But at that party, from across the room, he sees this girl named Juliet. And he immediately feels some kind of cosmic connection with her. And it's love at first sight. And he goes over to her, and of course, they talk to each other in poetry. And he holds her hand and he eventually convinces her to let him kiss her. But they soon discover that they're both from these two rival families, the Montagues and the Capulets, who would never approve of this relationship. But nothing can stop true love, and Romeo and Juliet get married in secret the very next day. So, Growing up, this whole soulmate kind of thinking was pervasive in the stories I read and in the way I heard people talk about love and in the way I thought about marriage. And it's interesting that this soulmate concept can be traced all the way back to Greek mythology. In the Greek philosopher Plato, who speculated that humans were once these large round people who had four arms and four legs and a single head with two faces, and they were simultaneously both male and female at the same time, but because humanity was growing too strong and was threatening to conquer the gods, Zeus split each of them in half to make them weaker. And this left these male and female halves cosmically desperate to be reunited with each other. And when they found each other, it was love at first sight, and they clung to each other because literally their split souls were reunited again as one. So this whole soulmate thing has been around for thousands of years. And don't get me wrong, I do believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, but I was wrong as a kid to think that my decision to marry one day would be based on an emotional or mystical feeling that I had found the one who completed me like it was for Romeo and Juliet. Rather, as I grew older, I learned that I was perfectly loved and complete already in Christ. And so I was just looking for someone to share with me and grow with me in that love. And when I met my future wife, and I got to know her, and I started dating her, and I eventually asked her parents to bless me to marry her, and I proposed to her, and then finally I stood on this stage 
and made my vows to her. I said nothing about having discovered a profound love for her, though I did. But I said everything about how I was now declaring my love to her. Meaning, what I didn't say is, Natalie, I love you this much. It's crazy. I do. No. I said that I was now taking her to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as I live till death do us part. That was my wedding vow, a declaration that I will always love you. So marriage vows are not so much about a love that's been found as much as they are about a love that's now being promised. And that's why they're given before so many friends and family and witnesses because marriage is defined by public consent. And not merely their consent of the couple's love for each other, but by their consent of the couple's promises to each other. And all of this is relevant because this morning we're gonna be talking about three marriages and the three greatest love stories of all time, all from the Old Testament book of Hosea. But before we get into the book, let's pray and just ask God to bless our time this morning together. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, I'm so encouraged by this book, Hosea, and, and by this man, Hosea, who literally lived out and experienced his prophetic message in a radical way. So Lord, I ask that you'd come now and give us understanding as we look at your word, and Lord, I ask that you would encourage our hearts this morning. Whether we're hearing the story, whether we are hearing the story for the first time, uh, or the 10th time, or the 100th time. And Lord, I wanna pray especially for those here this morning for whom this will be a timely and much needed message. So help us now, Lord, amen. All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea. And while you're turning there, if you don't know, you need to know that the whole Bible is basically one big story a narrative drama of God's plan of redemption through Jesus. And, and so in the first part of this story, which I call Act One, God establishes his kingdom in the creation of the universe and everything in it, including the creatures made in his image, mankind, Adam and Eve. Uh, but then in the second part of the story, which I call Act Two, there's rebellion in God's kingdom when Adam and Eve disobey God and fall into sin and corruption. But then in the next part of the story, which I'd call Act Three, God initiates his plan of redemption. And, and during this act, which happens from Genesis chapter three to the end of the Old Testament, God promises to crush the evil forces that Adam and Eve have unleashed. And later, God pursues a pagan man named Abram 
and renames him Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and says to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and that they would occupy the fertile land of Canaan, and and Abraham's people would be God's people, and God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants, meaning God has promised to be faithful to his people in love forever. And later, Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob has 12 12 sons whose descendants become known as the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, the Israelites. But later, God's people, the Israelites, become enslaved under Egypt, and that lasts for 430 years. But in a great exodus, God brings his chosen people up out of Egypt through a man named Moses, and then renews his covenant with those people at Mount Sinai, and then begins to lead them to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants. But instead of journeying straight to Canaan, which would have only taken a few days, God's people wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their faithlessness, sin, and rebellion against God and his word and his will. But then finally, under the leadership of Joshua, God's people occupy Canaan. They enter Canaan. Uh, But then God's people turn away from God and they turn to paganism. But they eventually cry out to God when their enemies begin to oppress them. And God, in his grace, raises up these military leaders called judges to rescue them. But there are multiple repeated cycles of this rebellion, then becoming oppressed, then crying out to God for help, and then being rescued by these judges over and over and over again for nearly 400 years. And then God's people ask for a king because they want to be like the other nations. And God uses a a man named Samuel to appoint Saul, the first king of Israel, and he's, he's not a good king. But then David and he's a faithful king. And under King David, the 12 tribes of Israel are united, and they defeat the surrounding nations, and Jerusalem becomes the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And then under David's son, King Solomon, the first temple is built in Jerusalem. And later, after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king, but he is wicked and oppressive, which leads 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel to rebel against him and to appoint a guy named Jeroboam to be their king. So Rehoboam, Jeroboam. And this leads to a split in the kingdom of Israel in 931 BC into a northern kingdom, 10 tribes under Jeroboam called Israel, and a southern kingdom, two tribes under Rehoboam called Judah. Okay. But during that time, God raises up these prophets to call his people to repentance and to return to the Lord. And this is absolutely necessary because both of these kings were really horrible. And both of these nations just declined into more and more chaos and corruption. Unfortunately, the words of the prophets fell on deaf ears. And... Um, In 722 BC, the Assyrians uh, Assyrians eventually came into Israel and conquered them and then exiled them to Assyria. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians did the same thing to Judah. 
They came in and conquered them and then exiled their people to Babylon. But God in his grace, even during the exile, continued to send prophets to his people, calling them to repentance and to return to the Lord. And the Old Testament basically ends with some of God's people returning from exile to the land of Israel under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So this was one long act three, which was preparing the way for and would eventually culminate in what I'd call act four, when God would accomplish his plan of redemption. And Hosea is one of these prophets that God sends specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel before they are conquered by the Assyrians, okay? Uh, And Hosea is the first of the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and they're called the Minor Prophets. And they're called the Minor Prophets only because their books are shorter in length than the Major Prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So, with that information overload, I hope you remembered all of it. What is the book of Hosea about? Well, the first thing we learn in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, is that these events are taking place during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Okay, we're going to take that, put it over here. We'll get back to that in just a minute. The next thing we learn is that God says something very strange to Hosea in verse 2. He says this, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. So, Perhaps, surprisingly, this is the first of our three love stories this morning. And it already sounds a little weird. Because God is telling Hosea to marry an adulterous woman. And why? Continuing on in verse 2, For the land, the northern kingdom of Israel, commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So this, this is the second of our three love stories. Israel has committed spiritual adultery against her heavenly husband, who is the Lord. And so, Hosea's marriage to an adulterous woman was to serve as a real-life metaphor of God's covenant relationship with his unfaithful people, Israel. So, Hosea would literally experience his prophetic message before he would give it to Israel. And this raises the question, what was the spiritual adultery of Israel? Now we go back to verse 1, where we learn that these events are taking place during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who actually wasn't the immediate successor of the Jeroboam we just talked about, Jeroboam I, but who reigned about 200 years after Jeroboam I and 200 years after the split of the kingdom of Israel into these northern and southern kingdoms. What happened was, during the reign of the first Jeroboam, so this is 200 years before Hosea, during his reign, he had feared that because the people of this new northern kingdom had to travel down to uh, Judah in the south, in Jerusalem, to worship at the temple and to offer sacrifices at the temple, He had feared that because they were always making that trip down there that they would eventually give their allegiance to King Rehoboam. And so, we learn in um, 
Second Kings, I believe, that Jeroboam the first has these golden calves made. And he told the people of the northern kingdom, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. Here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Just stay here and worship these. And the people did. And in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, we learn that Jeroboam II did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam I, and then some, because things were even worse in Israel now. Because now there were all of these shrines set up in honor to the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal, this Canaanite god who supposedly had control over the weather and agriculture and fertility and the horrors and satanic activity of this religion cannot be overstated. Basically, during rituals, adults would gather around an altar of Baal and would offer child sacrifice in a fire and then engage in bisexual activity together, thinking that this would bring them favor from Baal and cause him to bring rain to their land and crops. And Baalism also involved prostitution and all kinds of sexual perversion and that this was happening in Israel among God's people was horrific. And in chapters 4 through 14 of Hosea, God unleashes a torrent of accusations against his covenant people, Israel. And God says that they worship false gods. They worship false gods. I'm going to go through a bunch of scripture in this section. So we're not going to show them all up on the screen, but if you want to, if you're taking notes, you can write down all the references to look at later. But he says in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, my people inquire a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 14 says, Your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery, and the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. Chapter 5, verse 11 says that they have been determined to go after filth. Chapter 7, verse 4 says that they are all adulterers. They are all like a heated oven, smoldering with lustful passion. And chapter 13, verse 2 says, And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer child sacrifice kiss the golden calves. They should have been kissing their children and destroying their idols. But the satanic worship of Baalism twisted that around. And God says that they breed injustice. They breed injustice. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. 
They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Even the priests of Israel are murderous. Chapter 7, verse 3 says, By the people's evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. And chapter 10, verse 13 says, You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. And God says they trust in political alliances and not in God. They trust in political alliances and not in God. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, When Israel saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Israel went to Assyria and sent word to the great king for help. So instead of reaching out to God for help, they reached out to Assyria. And chapter 11, verse 5 says that Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. And chapter 12, verse 1 says that Israel made a covenant with Assyria, a covenant that Assyria would break, just like Israel broke their covenant with God, when just a few decades later, they would turn on Israel and conquer them. And God says they have forgotten God. They have forgotten God. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 14 says that Israel has forgotten his maker. And in chapter 11, verse 7, God says, my people are bent on turning away from me. Now, back to love story, number one, Hosea and Gomer. So, God tells Hosea to take for himself an adulterous wife, and then Hosea marries an adulteress named Gomer. And together they have a son, and God says, name that son Jezreel which means in the Hebrew, God's, uh, God scatters, which signified the dispersion and wandering that Israel would do apart from God. And then it appears that Gomer commits adultery and has two other kids with a different man. And their names are Loruhama, which means no mercy, and Lo-Ami, which means not my people which signified that God was prepared to show no mercy and to allow those who had chosen to go their own way to just go. You know, psychologists say that one of the most emotionally traumatic experiences anyone can go through is to discover infidelity in marriage and then especially divorce, which often follows from it. And I wonder what Hosea was thinking and feeling in that moment when God told him in chapter 3, verse 1, Hosea, go again. Love that woman, Gomer, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. God was telling Hosea to pursue his adulterous wife again, to bring her back and to forgive her and to love her as his bride, to serve as a real life metaphor of the pursuit of God for his adulterous and wayward bride, Israel. And in chapter three, verses two through three, we hear from Hosea himself and he says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a litich of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine. So evidently, Gomer had gotten into a situation where she had become someone's slave. It's likely she had become a prostitute. And Hosea goes and finds her in her desperate condition and says to her, you must dwell as mine. Come back home. A picture of what God would do for his unfaithful bride, Israel. And why? Because God's covenant relationship with his people, just like Hosea and Gomer's marriage, was a promise of love, for better or for worse. A promise that I will always love you, no matter what. But how would God bring Israel back to himself again? He says three things in chapter two. Number one, he will block Israel's paths. He will block Israel's paths. In chapter two, verses six through seven, God says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. In other words, God in his grace is going to frustrate Israel's plans to sin by putting real, tangible Barriers between them and the actualization of their sinful desires, meaning God is going to keep them from doing what they want to do. And when Israel has wearied and exhausted herself trying to get what she wants, she'll finally give up and realize that she's not in the place she wants to be and that the place she really, deeply, truly wants to be is back in the arms of the Lord. Number two, he will remove Israel's provisions. He will remove Israel's provisions. In verses eight through nine, God says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. In other words, Israel had wrongly believed that all of her blessings and provisions came from the hand of Baal when all along they had been coming from the hand of God. But when God would remove these provisions, 
Israel would be made to see that Baal could not bring them back. And number three, he will allure Israel to himself and speak tenderly to her. He will allure Israel to himself and speak tenderly to her. In verses 14 through 15, God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God really loves his people. And so much so that after he has blocked Israel's path and has removed Israel's provisions, he will speak so tenderly to her, saying, you are mine. Come back home. Of course, what we know historically is that what it would take to get Israel to that place was no less than the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC in the exile. But the first half of chapter five, or rather chapter three, verse five, says this. Afterward, after this period of necessary discipline, which would include the exile, afterward, the children of Israel shall return to the land and seek the Lord their God. So there would be restoration for Israel as there was for Gomer. Now, I said that there were three love stories in this book, and I've only mentioned the first two. The last love story we find in Hosea, it's alluded to in the second half of this verse, verse five of chapter three, which says that the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, it sounds a little weird to hear that Israel will seek David their king. Because at this point in history, King David had been dead for a couple hundred years. But what's interesting is that about a hundred years after Hosea prophesied, there was another prophet named Ezekiel who said that God would raise up David and he would be king over God's people forever. Forever. So this David would be an eternal king. And if we jump forward to the New Testament, do you know who we see being called the son of David? It's Jesus Christ. And the reason is because about a thousand years before Jesus came, God told David that through his family line would come the Messiah, the Savior. And in the first chapter of the New Testament in Matthew, we see that Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. 
which means that Jesus, the king of kings, was the king David that Hosea was talking about. And so, this last verse of Hosea chapter 3 points us forward to the day over 700 years later when God's people would seek Jesus who came through the Davidic line and was like David, but even greater, and who would be king over God's people forever. And so Hosea and Gomer and God's dealings with the nation of Israel were real-life metaphors and a foreshadowing of a greater relationship, the relationship between Christ and his church, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation throughout all history. And when I say that Hosea and Gomer and God's dealings with the nation of Israel were real life metaphors of this greater relationship between Christ and his church, this means that we today, as people in need of a savior from our sin, are a type of Israel and a type of Gomer. And that's bad news for everybody because everybody is guilty. And just take a look outside. The predominant religion of this post-Christian culture is Baalism. Our culture today, which offers hundreds of thousands of child sacrifices every year at abortion clinics all over the place, to the gods of convenience and choice. Our culture today, which not only accepts sexual perversion, but celebrates it. Our culture today, which may frown upon prostitution sometimes, but where you can pay for pornography and see other people who are being paid to use their bodies for sex, Baalism is alive and well. It may look a little different. It may go by different names, but fundamentally, it's the exact same thing that Israel succumbed to. Sinful rebellion against God and his word. And if we are not the kinds of people like Hosea, who seek to please God more than men, and who want to live to be God's hands and feet to a world that is drowning and dying in sin, and who desire to live for God's glory and not our own, then we are no better than the culture. And if we are not the kinds of people like Hosea who speak out against evil and injustice, and who call people to repentance, and who live as godly examples for the world to see and follow, then we are only allowing evil to continue unchallenged. And if we are not the kinds of people like Hosea, who desire God above all other lovers, and who despise the things that break not only God's law, but also God's heart, and who resist temptation, for the sake of faithfulness to God, then we will become as evil as the things we love.
problem is we often look a lot more like a Gomer than a Hosea. And that's because we're all sinful, fallen, adulterous people. In some way, all sin is spiritual adultery. It's a distrust of God, or a faithlessness in God, or a cold, unloving heart toward God, or a carelessness about God, or just a flat-out rejection of God that says sin is more enjoyable than you, Lord. And if this morning you know that in some way or another, you have wrongly pursued other lovers or things or possessions or pleasures in your life, then this book, Hosea, is for you. And you need to know this, that it is not all bad news to resemble Israel and Goma, because look at how God responds to his unfaithful people. He says, you are mine. Come back home. And look at Hosea, how he responds to his adulterous wife. He says, you are mine. Come back home. And how much more will the Savior who left his heavenly home to come to us and who purchased us in our slavery, not with silver or money, but with his own blood, and who put to death the eternal consequences of our sin forever, and who rose from death, showing us that he is the possessor of the power of a life that is stronger than death itself, and who has said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and who has promised to never leave or forsake us, and who has said that he will present us blameless before the Father, how much more will Jesus run to us in our place of sin and wrap us up in his arms and say to us, I'm not going anywhere. I am right here. I love you. Jesus is the faithful husband of his bride, for better or for worse. And praise God that Jesus' heart doesn't grow cold for us as ours often has for him. He loves us perfectly and he has promised to love us always. And though we cannot love perfectly in this life because we're all fallen, sinful human beings, the very first institution that God established in creation, an institution that was meant to reflect something of Christ's relationship with the church, an institution he gave us to reflect something of the sanctity, beauty, and covenantal promise of God's relationship to us is human marriage human marriage. Two, becoming one flesh, sealed by the promise, for better or for worse. But of course, often our marriages fail and promises are broken. And 
without getting into all the reasons for why marriages might fail and promises might be broken, one of them, it seems, is because infatuation fades and once warm and tender hearts can easily grow cold and hardened. Let me say that again. Infatuation, that intense, desirous passion, infatuation fades and once warm and tender hearts can easily grow cold and hardened. I think this is why Gomer left Hosea for another man because her infatuation faded and she looked for some other guy to give her that spark of excitement and passion. And I think this is why the nation of Israel and us today often find our hearts growing cold toward God because our spiritual highs don't always last. And when when they begin to wane, we need something more than feelings to sustain our faith. And if we don't have that, then we'll find ourselves turning away from God to other things. And it's not terribly uncommon to hear struggling married couples say, I just don't feel about them the same way that I used to. And maybe they're not the one. And maybe the one for me is still out there somewhere. This is where every marriage will inevitably end up if that marriage is based upon emotional or mystical feelings. Because emotions can change. Feelings come and go. And mystical beliefs about soulmates just aren't true. None of them are good foundations to build a marriage upon. And if couples seek marriage for bad reasons, they'll seek divorce for bad reasons too. The Bible says that the problem is not that we've been separated from our other half, but that we've been separated from relationship with God. And we need to know Jesus. And we need to know that we are only perfectly loved and only complete in him. In fact, knowing Jesus as our greatest husband keeps us from making too much of our, of our marriages and from hoping to find in our spouse what can only be found in him. No person can occupy that place in our heart that was created to rest in God. And when people desiring to marry rest firstly in God, it actually frees them so that they only have to look for a soul mate, S-O-L-E, one M-A-T-E. Someone just to share with them and grow with them in that love rather than a soul mate, S-O-U-L-M-A-T-E. And when two people whose hearts have rested in God enter into the covenant of marriage, those promises have a hope to last because that man and that woman have one person in their life already who has given them that promise and who will keep it forever and who dwells in them by the Holy Spirit. This is what the book of Hosea reminds us of. 
the surety, fidelity, and hope of God's promises rooted in his unchanging and unending love for his people, for better or for worse, which was proven to us in the accomplishment of his plan of redemption. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, act four, now and forevermore. And Christians, maybe some of you need to hear this this morning. Jesus is never giving up on you. He will never stop pursuing you till your dying breath. So don't be surprised if you find God putting obstacles in your life to keep you from sin, maybe minor, maybe major. And don't be surprised if you find God removing good things from your life which you credited to something or someone other than him. And don't be surprised if you find God speaking tenderly to you, saying to you, you are mine. If you have turned away from your sin and have trusted in Jesus for life and salvation, you belong to him, and he wants you and he looks upon you with such tender compassion that even when you are faithless, he says, I am right here, and I am going nowhere. Come home, my love. Come home. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to pray over every person here this morning, myself included, Lord, all of us who continually in sinful rebellion against you and your word look for love in all the wrong places and give our hearts away so carelessly to other loves and lovers. Oh Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak right now to those in this room who you may be calling for the very first time or maybe just once, to, once again to, to leave the brothel of this fallen world where everything is for sale and everyone has a price to come home and to return to you our creator our heavenly husband and our savior to return to the place where we were bought with a price cleansed and made clean and are wrapped up in the arms of our greatest love which is you Lord Lord, have your way in our hearts. Melt away the coldness and hardness. Lord, give us a renewed warmth and tenderness of heart that seeks to know you more and to follow you and to rest in you for your glory alone. Amen.